Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we rewatched The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of three episodes about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, directed by Peter Jackson, who co-wrote the screenplay with Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh. This epic fantasy movie holds up incredibly well, outshining most blockbusters of the past 20 years. We also already have an audio commentary track up on Patreon, so if you want to rewatch this film with us talking in your ear, you may. Thank you so much to our Patreon subscriber Lucy, who paid for this episode. Thank you very much. We were so excited to start rewatching these movies for the first time in many years in my case. Morgan and I are both of precisely the correct age for this to have come out when we were both like 11. We were obsessed with this as children, separately on different continents, but demographically very similar. <laughs> I mean, you are two months older than me, almost exactly. Yes. So we were basically the same. The, like, a the couple same. of little nerds. And anyone who is a millennial will either have been those nerds or been aware of those nerds who were fucking obsessed with the Lord of the Rings movies in the early 2000s. And the great news is that unlike most childhood obsessions, these movies hold up incredibly well. They are so good. They have not been matched. Great films. Yes. I feel like every big like sci-fi fantasy series that's come since is trying to achieve what these have achieved on some level. And obviously some of those series have been extremely financially successful. The Marvel films have made a gajillion dollars and congratulations to them. But um, this is just not doable. These these movies cannot be topped. Like, and this film in particular is the best one, which we said on the commentary track several times. Um, I've seen it more recently than the other two, so it'll be interesting to rewatch those in the coming months. But I am firm in my opinion that this is the best one as a movie. The other two have some problems. I don't think they're perfect. And I don't think this is technically perfect either. There are a couple small things I would tweak, but like, basically, I think it's a perfect movie. I don't have very many problems with it. Which is pretty remarkable when you consider the fact that it's adapted from an enormous book. And that book is beloved by people. And that's a really hard thing to do because people are like out to get you. An enormous book which has simultaneously got an obsessive fan base and also is like impenetrable to a lot of people. Because it just like goes off on tangents and there's just all these songs and you've got to argue over whether to delete Tom Bombadil or whatever. But this seems like an excellent segue into discussing Mr. J.R.R. Tolkien himself before we get any further into the movie. Morgan has done a fair amount of research into Mr. Tolkien's personal background and academic studies, which is how he wound up having the kind of brain that can make Lord of the Rings. Um, and I will talk a bit about the mythological background in a minute. So Morgan, take it away. Yes. So to give just a very brief outline of Tolkien, he was born in 1892 in South Africa. His father worked for the Bank of Africa in South Africa. This would have been around the sort of Boer War period. Um, and he had a brother, I believe. And his mother and the two children were sent back to England when he was very small. And his father stayed in South Africa and died when Tolkien was two. And his mother then died from diabetes when he was 12. So he was an orphan very young and then was like exactly the right age for him and all of his friends to be cannon fodder in World War One, which of course is the experience that sort of defined his life and then became the inspiration for The Lord of the Rings. 
So apparently there's a quote in the 1966 forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings where he says, by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead, which is just like unimaginably awful to me, especially when you consider the fact that his parents had died so young as well. He got to the front in July of 1916 and was in the trenches and then uh, got trench fever and was sent home that November. Um, I think a lot of his friends died at the Somme and he may have been there as well. And uh, when he was convalescing, he started writing the stories, the first stories that would sort of be like the Middle Earth mythology stories, including um, The Fall of Gondolin. And he then, after the war, goes on to have this academic career, mostly at Oxford, although he was also at the University of Leeds for a while. But Oxford is definitely where he's sort of associated with. When I was there, like, people still remembered him and would tell stories about him. And, like, famously not a good lecturer, which is very funny. Like, he would, like, face the blackboard and, like, mumble. Although he appears to have inspired, like, profound dedication in his sort of colleagues and students. But he was not maybe very charismatic as a lecturer. And also palling around with C.S. Lewis, lest we forget. Because yes. there's famously, there's always loads and loads of comparisons to them because they were working at the same time around the same general source material. But while C.S. Lewis was absolutely desperate to make charming tales to indoctrinate the youth into the wonders, wonders of Christianity, J.R.R. Tolkien went in a different direction. No shade to C.S. Lewis, whose books I loved as an eight-year-old who was not <laughs> indoctrinated into the world of Christianity, but... Uh... Well, yes. So they had this group called the Inklings. Tolkien had many clubs over the course of his life. He loved being in a club with other men and no women. And the Inklings was the writing club that they had at Oxford. Adorable and um, Yeah. And Lewis would write these, would, was writing the Narnia stuff and then also other things. They were all very allegorical and extremely Christian. And um, Tolkien was a Roman Catholic and like went to mass every morning his entire like professional life which sounds exhausting to me as an atheist like why would you do that no one a lot of time no one does that can you imagine how catholic you have to be to do so catholic (laughs) but he found allegory he was just like no no i this is childish like i will not do that so he was an academic but did not publish very much he was not very prolific because all of his time was spent like inventing languages and working on his own mythological stuff hated modern literature and by that i mean like shakespeare was too modern for him he thought shakespeare was bad but somehow winds up publishing the hobbit in 1937 it's a massive phenomenon huge hit they want a sequel and it takes him almost 20 years to get the lord of the rings out um and that is published in three it's one book but it's published in three volumes over the course of 1954 and 1955. Which is why the first book basically doesn't end. It just stops, which is why they had to restructure that for the film. (laughs) Right. And the publishers didn't really know if it was going to hit. And they were like, I guess we'll print like 2000 copies. And of course it immediately becomes an unprecedented phenomenon. And uh, yeah, he sort of over the course of his life really retreats into this world that he's created. Um, one of the essays I read, I'll link to all of these things, there were several interesting things I read on the London Review of Books site, compares him to other sort of major modernist authors from Great Britain in the 20th century as sort of someone who was traumatized by the war and reacting against sort of industrial changes. But instead of like commenting on them, he basically was just like, I refuse to engage. Like, I am not dealing with this. I'm creating my own world set in the past. And I'm living there. Goodbye. 
And part of that also, which you are not going to talk about, is that he was profoundly influenced by sort of myth, especially from Scandinavia, which you know more about than I. So yes, <laughs> I hand off to you now. I feel like this is something I'll probably touch on a bit more in our later episodes, as with many other topics, because we are not going to fit everything into episode one. But um, just as sort of general Cliff's notes, the really major influences on Tolkien's mythology are Old English. Beowulf is a big one. I'm not super familiar with Beowulf, but that is a big mainstream hit, which you can watch a bad movie of if you wish. Um, and also, obviously, Norse, i.e. Viking sagas, where you can see kind of a lot of the poetic influences in the way uh, Lord of the Rings is written. Like, there's lots of verse in those books. And there's lots of kind of the, the idea of an oral history or a story that was written many years ago and then retranslated. I do think that I'm right in saying that, like, the concept of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is that we are reading an English translation of like an ancient ancient text in a fake language which is delightful. Yes, yeah. But there's just a ton of stuff that we think of as Tolkien mythology which is literally just, it's just Norse mythology with new names so there's sort of in the ancient sort of backstory of Lord of the Rings there's Dark Elves and Light Elves which is very Norse and then obviously there's um the Song of the Nibelungs which is one of the big old Norse stories which also inspired Wagner's Ring Cycle, which is like one of the most famous operas ever and very clearly an inspiration behind Lord of the Rings. I am not like a Wagner fan particularly. Um, every time I try to listen to Wagner, I'm like, this is just like I'm being attacked. I, I listen to so much classical music. I'm a huge fan of classical music, but he's, he's a famously very complex and dense composer and much like Tolkien, his fans are extremely dedicated but the ring cycle is kind of what it sounds like. It's a Norse myth inspired epic, which is about this magic ring, which is forged by a dwarf. And there's various sort of supernatural figures who are sort of fighting over this ring and various subplots involving gods and dwarves and what have you. So there's an obvious similarity there. And the other like really clear inspiration that comes in is especially relevant for this movie in particular is Gandalf. Now, if you are not like an old school fan of Viking stories, you may not be aware that Odin is not the way he is depicted in most Hollywood movies. Obviously, Hollywood movies love Vikings and they love, you know, stuff like the Thor franchise, where traditionally Odin is kind of portrayed as an old sort of patriarchal, powerful warrior king who kind of feels like a mixture between Zeus and the sort of Christian greybeard god figure that you get in like all... Americanized kind of pop culture is the idea of God because people can't really conceive of the idea of there being like an all-father figure who doesn't fit into that mold. But obviously, like many ancient religions, it wasn't like a kind of morality-based system. And also the top dog was not like the best person or even like the king, really. So Gandalf resembles Odin in that he is like a wise old wanderer. Like Odin is often depicted as this sort of cunning very clever person and he kind of he wanders around having adventures and getting in with weird stuff which is actually why the not very good american gods is actually a better depiction of odin than most other modern pop culture but that is precisely gandalf's role in this movie which is that he shows up and is all wise and delivers a vast amount of exposition in an incredibly skilled way which we will be talking about when we uh discuss ian mckellen's marvelous his marvelous acting but yeah, like the last thing about I'm going to talk about with the 
mythological situation here is that this became the mold for like basically all mainstream western fantasy after the 1950s like this became like the cliche and obviously dungeons and dragons is a huge influence on a whole generation of fantasy creators and that is also just lifting from lord of the rings so you have this very obvious kind of like racial breakdown between elves dwarves hobbits and goblins or like orc type people and the hobbits are the only one of those that were really invented by Tolkien and he was kind of using them almost as like a self-insert character. The whole point is that they're just sort of nice, simple country folk from an unspecified golden age of English rural life. And I have a quote here from Tolkien which pretty much illustrates precisely what he was going for. He said, I am in fact a hobbit in all but size. I like gardens, trees and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe and I like good plain food, unrefrigerated, but detest French cooking. I like and even dare to wear in these dull days ornamental waistcoats. I am fond of mushrooms out of a field. Have very simple sense of humour, which even my appreciative cr- critics find tiresome. I go to bed late and I get up late when possible, and I do not travel much. Which really says it all. FYI, Tolkien hated the French. So much. He hated them so much. But um, there was definitely a lot going on with Tolkien and this movie and the entire franchise in terms of like pastoralism, which is something that ties into Wagner, who was later very inspirational towards Hitler. And there was always a lot of kind of marriage between these ideas of there being a great old time of European strength and kind of countryside beauty and also a lot of uh, unnerving fascist stuff, which fortunately in the case of Lord of the Rings is not particularly present. Although it is a notably white franchise. Also something we will be discussing. So Morgan, <laughs> let's have some more academic references. Yes. I love this podcast. Well, <laughs> part of what is so fascinating about this whole situation with Tolkien, right, is that the books inspired this like maniac devotion in generations of people, us included. I was trying to think when we're preparing this, whether I had read the books because the movies were coming out or whether I had just gotten to them yeah. because I was at I, that place. I read the books because I wanted to like smugly have read the books before the films came out at age 11. And I cannot remember. I kind of feel like I just was on the trajectory to have read them anyway. Oh, absolutely. I definitely had... I mean, I certainly would have regardless. I mean, I was obsessed with fantasy. Like, even if the movies didn't exist, I would have gotten to these novels. But I kind of think I was at that point anyway. I had this very old copy of The Hobbit that actually was one of an early enough edition that it was pre-revisions. So in the first edition of The Hobbit, I mean, I, the copy I have is not a first edition, but like the first edition, the Gollum character, when Bilbo encounters him, is much less hostile than in mm. the revisions after The Lord of the Rings, because when he went on and wrote them, he was like, oh, this character is going to be like a central figure in these books. And so he goes back and rewrites parts of The Hobbit to make the encounter with Gollum slash Smeagol way sort of creepier and weirder, and he's a worse character. And so I had read that, and I read The Fellowship, and I remember getting the second two books for Christmas that year and spending the entire Christmas break, like, fanatically reading the entire trilogy and going to see the first movie. And, like, my brain just, like, exploded. I have a vivid, vivid memory of getting to, like, the climactic moment in the third novel and, like, going to find my dad in the kitchen because he had read the books as a kid and be like, I got to the end! Like, so these novels have this power, right? Especially over young people when they read them. But for Tolkien, like, obviously, there was so much emotion 
that he's putting from his life into them. But if you read about him, he's primarily interested in just like coming up with imaginary languages. Like that was his first interest in all of this. And this massive apparatus around the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit in terms of like the history of Middle Earth and all of this stuff was kind of what he was more interested in, it seems like, than actually constructing the Lord of the Rings as a novel. I mean, the structure of these books is famously meandering. Like, I think I recall him, stories about him sort of starting to write the books. And instead of being like, I'm going to figure out the structure, he would just like write continually forwards. And if he got stuck, he'd just sort of go back a bit and then just like pull out ahead. (laughs) Yes. And so there's an essay by uh, J.I.M. Stewart in London Review of Books, which again, we will link to, where he says, apparently, he starts working on the language that will become Quenya, which is like the high elven language in the books, in his first year as an Oxford undergraduate when he starts working on Finnish. And it's basically, it's based on Finnish, the language. And then by 1917, I have another quote from another essay, he's got the bones of Sindarin, which is the other language. So that's like 40 years before these novels come out, right? Like, what? Which makes me feel better about not being able to think of good, like, place names or whatever. You know, if you need to make up a name, it's like Tolkien was working on that for decades. (laughs) Well, his whole field was philology, the study of language. And this is part of why he wasn't particularly prolific academic is that that is not a hot field. And he was this like weirdo who just wanted to study language. His biggest legacy to the students of Oxford University is that the English undergraduates at Oxford have to study Old English And the Cambridge students do not have to do this because Tolkien was like, no, I am making them do this and somehow convince the English faculty to add that as a requirement. So the first term you get there at 18 years old, you read Victorian novels and old English because fucking J.R.R. Tolkien was like, it's just so important that they all read Beowulf in the original text. No, (laughs) no. Apparently he wanted the syllabus to stop at the year 1400 because, you know. That's when they ruined it. That's when English was ruined. Right. But the paradox of a man like that, who apparently was like a nice person, but like obviously just in another world mentally, creating this work of art that A, was like fully embraced by counterculture people in the 60s and 70s. And then also just was so massively popular and continues to be. It's surreal. It's completely, completely wild to me. There's no real conclusion I have to draw from that because it's just bizarre. But um, one of the genius things about this movie, which we will get to shortly, is that they managed to encompass a lot of what makes the books feel like real history, right? while shaving off the stuff that's like, yeah, we actually do not need 50 pages of, like, you talking about whatever. One of the essays I read made this really interesting point that, like, at the end of the last volume, there's, like, hundreds of pages of appendices, right? Which I had totally forgotten, but I remember as a kid being like, oh my god, there's all this stuff about, like, maps and languages and, like, extra history, whatever. And, like, I think there's this whole bit about like Aragorn and Arwen in the appendices where he's like I don't really want to put this story in the main thing but like you're gonna have it back here and 
if you're a particular kind of child, that's the first time you encountered like an academic apparatus in a book and are fascinated I by it. I loved, God, I loved those appendices. Oh, me too. And obviously that's not the kind of thing that translates into a film. And you can enjoy the novels without being interested in that stuff. But so much of the books like feels more real because he thought so much about all of this. And his real goal was to create a sort of mythology for England, which he felt was absent. Like he loved the Norse mythology stuff so much as you were saying. And he definitely, I think there's definitely some like Arthurian myth stuff in these stories as well, but that was more recent than what he was yeah. really... And it's also just like, it's relatively minimal compared to other fantasy novels that derive from the same general stuff. Yeah. And um, there's a quote from him writing to his publisher in 1951. He says, Do not laugh, but once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen. I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast black cloths, which I could dedicate simply to, to England, to my country, fit for the more adult mind of a land now long steeped in poetry. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands, wielding paint and music and drama. Absurd. But that is kind of what he was trying to do. And the Silmarillion definitely is is that, which is the book of sort of like yeah, I've mythological stories published one. after. Oh, oh, I did. Because <laughs> I was that obsessed. Even at my most obsessed, you know, age 12 or 13 or whatever, I was like, this is rough. There's There are stories, like individual stories in the Silmarillion, which was compiled by his son after he died. So it was, it's sort of a strange object that are really beautiful and like fascinating. And then there's, it's almost like reading the Bible where you have like a, a book where it's like, and then so-and-so beget so-and-so beget so-and-so. And you're like, I don't care about this. There's a couple of like romances, I think that are good in the Silmarillion and Baron and Luthien is the one that he supposedly based off him and his wife, who I actually can't believe we haven't mentioned yet, but Tolkien was married. And there's some actually quite lovely stories about like him and his wife, Edith. They met as teenagers. They met when he was 16 and she was 19 and they courted for years because her, her father didn't approve. But they got together and were married for decades. And when he was fighting at the Battle of the Somme, his linguistic skills allowed him to write coded messages to his wife, which she could decode to figure out where the troop placements were in the battle to keep track of him because she was so worried. Unbelievable. So, unbelievable. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> she died before him and he had Luthien put on her tomb and then Baron put on his once he died oh, shortly gosh. thereafter. That is Which is, <laughs> Yeah, he's just one of those guys who feels like he wasn't that interested in women. <laughs> Obviously. But apart from his wife, they had a meeting of the minds. Yeah, it seems like they got on fine, mostly. There's one sort of harrowing quote about marriage that I will read later oh, that God. I don't know if it was all smooth sailing, but um, it seems mostly like it was it was pretty much okay. I mean, for people who got married in the 1910s, the bar is low. <laughs> Correct. I think he was kind of just an old fuddy-duddy who was profoundly, profoundly traumatized by the first couple decades of his life and never got over it. And this was how he coped was by creating this massive imaginary world. There are some great quotes in one of the essays I read about him writing about the elves, 
where it's almost like he thinks elves are real. And like, he clearly didn't, but like, he just wanted them to be real so much that he spent his whole life almost making them real in his head, right? Which is how you get this series of films, which he surely would have hated. But we like them. So, you know, it's fine. Are we going to talk about some movies? Yeah. We, how, how far are we into this podcast? We are a half an hour yeah. into this podcast. We're going to talk about the movie now. I mean, this was a huge undertaking. There had been an animated film or films in the 70s, I think, which are not well regarded. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just very silly. They're very silly cartoons. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's fine. But like this, the fans at the time yeah. were not. I mean, they, they were not up to the epic source material. Yeah. And somehow Peter Jackson, who at this point had made horror films I have not seen. I don't know if you have seen. I don't think so. I mean, he basically he made like not really scary horror films, but kind of fun, fun, silly horror films. And um, the film Heavenly Creatures with uh, Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet, which is based on a real crime in New Zealand of teenage girls who kill somebody. I can't remember. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's great, though. It's a tiny movie. Which he also co-wrote with his wife, Fran Walsh, who co-wrote all of The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies. And this was, but this was like massively larger than anything he'd done before. He somehow gets the rights to these. Uh, I did less research onto that than onto Tolkien for this episode. We'll get more into some of those details in future episodes, perhaps. But, um, what they do to make these movies, which is pretty unprecedented, is they shoot all three of them at the same time. They go to New Zealand and it costs $200 million. New Line says, okay, we're just going to pay. We're going to gamble that this is going to be a hit and you're going to just go make all of them. And obviously they had to go back and like do reshoots for various things. But like basically they shot all three of these movies in one go, which was wild like that does not happen now it did not happen before that like there's no equivalent situation that i can think of and that was how they could say they are going to come out one per christmas for three years and it's going to be this huge movie event for the next three seasons and i read a couple reviews of the first one and there was definitely this attitude of like well we don't know if these are going to be hits but like you know (laughs) and then of course they become like among the highest grossing movies of all time at the time but uh even the reviews that were saying that, like, they, they knew it was great. And it gets nominated for 13 Oscars. Like, it was a phenomenon immediately. And I remember going to see it. And the first Harry Potter film, I think, came out the same year. And obviously, like, the Star Wars prequels had begun by this point. So, like, yeah. two years before. But for me, like, I was also obsessed with the Harry Potter books at that time, of course. And I went and saw the first Harry Potter movie with my best friend at the time and I was like that was stupid and horrible I hated it they got everything wrong adaptations I was very picky at that age I wanted them to get everything right and I remember going to see this one even at the age of 11 where I had very high standards for this kind of thing in a very rigid way and like I I remember them cutting stuff out and being sort of sad about it but I was just like my brain exploded yeah I mean it's unique in so many different ways right because I mean, obviously, it is technically a blockbuster. Obviously, it's like this expensive movie, which doesn't have that many action sequences, as Morgan pointed out in the commentary track. There's like 
a couple in there. There was like a fight in Moria towards the end. There's a chase scene to the Buckleberry Ferry at the beginning. And there's some parts where they're like running away from the ring rates. But really, this is like a three hour long movie where there's just loads of talking and loads of hiking and a lot of very emotionally intense sort of sweeping narrative stuff. And that is very different from the type of blockbusters we see coming out of Hollywood. But it's also not a movie that's doing the sort of Christopher Nolan thing of being like, this is a blockbuster for adults. Because you can watch this as a 10 year old, like obviously there's a few spooky bits, but this is comprehensible to a child. It's very emotionally engaging, but it's not kind of attempting to be over intellectual. But at the same time, on a technical level, it's a masterpiece. There's just so much you can talk about with these films. Like at the time, they are just the pinnacle of the DVD commentary genre because there was just so much behind the scenes sort of technical stuff to talk about. Like every person who was 11 years old in 2001 definitely knew that the person who made all the uh, all the chainmail in these films lost his uh, fingerprints because he was hand making all the chainmail. <laughs> that kind of thing. There's just so many like little bits of trivia, but um, it really is just so kind of sincere and famously kind of lacking in the undercurrent of toxic masculinity you get in virtually every mainstream sci-fi and fantasy blockbuster, which is fascinating. Yes. Well, I think a lot of what you're saying in terms of like, it's not like a Nolan movie, right? And like, I love Christopher Nolan. I mean, is that it's not an action movie. Like, it's fundamentally not an action movie, which the vast majority yes. of blockbusters are. Yes. Like, all of that is coming from the source material. Which is not to say that the books are perfect. I haven't read them in a long time. But, like, they are too long and too digressive. And some of the prose is um, tortured, shall we say. Um, and obviously, there, it's just like lots of men. Lots and lots of men. But his whole thing is these like very profound homosocial relationships between men that are very pure and positive. Like, and then occasionally you'll get a sort of like toxic version of that, like the Boromir situation. And then Denethor later, the whole family, that whole family is got problems. In a very classic sort of, uh, you know, Viking myth way. <laughs> yeah. But like the reason that you don't have sort of like, gross broiness in the movies is that it's not in the books which does not mean it, they couldn't have added it but they didn't like they clearly were like we're not going to do this and i think it's worth noting that two of the screenwriters were women and that they obviously got what was appealing about the novels one of the essays i read and then uh tweeted about yesterday was by anthony lane in the new yorker which had a lot of interesting stuff in it and then he ends with this thing about like how boys always like these books more because of bullshit reasons and like girls just blah 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 and, and it's just so funny because girls love lord of the rings and so the movies much. made them love more because like they're just so i mean these are horse girl movies they're literally horse girl yes. movies and they're so emotional and i i mean i think we talk too much about sort of like gender divides in this in this podcast because like obviously they're fake but like in terms of movie marketing it's perceived as this like male nerd thing and it's clearly not well what i was gonna say was my experience of this was totally gendered because I had all, like, I was friends with a bunch of teenage girls at the time, Yeah, me right? too, yeah. And we all fucking loved it. And I think part of the appeal was that there was none of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's all sort of vulnerability and friendship. Yes. Again, the toxic men are signposted as bad. Well, I mean... In a, like, very Yeah, and also way. it's like, it's not really the same as, like, when we talk about, like, toxic masculinity, it's not the same thing, right? Because it's like, you're talking about villains, <laughs> 
like you're talking about like the bad guys whereas it's sort of you watch like virtually any superhero movie or blockbuster or whatever and like either there will be just the sort of general like undercurrent of sexism you get in every blockbuster because of the way the like men's and women's roles are put down or they're just fucking all about like really bland like daddy issues nonsense and it's just like I mean we don't even need to know who like Frodo's parents are it's not relevant no but like I really hadn't thought about the World War One thing until you were kind of talking about that in this episode because I was just like as soon as I was like of course of course the whole the whole thing that he wrote about is like brotherhood and romantic tragedy stemming from his experiences in World War One and the fact that obviously he was like pretty much only interacting with men ever apart from his wife I mean and there was one of the things I read she's making the point that like the Frodo and Sam relationship is was him trying to sort of recreate what he saw as an idealized sort of um, upper class, underclass relationship in the trenches. Yeah. Right. Which like we would criticize now, but to him, this was yeah. an idealized form of, rela- of relationship between men because Sam is Frodo's servant in a more explicit way in the books than in the films. Not that he's like literally working for him, but like the class divide is much clearer I mean, I feel like in the movies, the class divide will be more obvious to British audiences because of the way they've done the accents. The accents, for sure. But, like, they minimize that, I think, on purpose. And the sort of, like, profound dedication that Sam has to him in the first book is way more sort of, like, he's just, like, I have to... I have to just keep him safe and follow him around. uh, And by the time you get to the third novel, like he's the hero basically. Right. Like, and it's this weird inversion, which is part of what I found so profound about reading them as a kid. Like he's just not the sort of person you envision as a hero in those books. And the kind of like hero's journey story gets sort of flipped on its head. Yeah. I mean, this is very much an ensemble cast movie and Frodo's role I mean, he's the viewpoint character, but he doesn't have a great deal to do in this movie. His character development's relatively minimal, which doesn't matter. And Elijah Wood is really engaging and sweet and lovely. He's a fucking baby in this movie, which once again is something you don't realise when you're 11. But he was like 18 or something when they filmed this. Like he was basically still a child actor, (laughs) but um, he is is obviously very young. And uh, Sam is like at least 10 years older than him, IRL. Yeah. Yeah, this one's kind of more an ensemble and it's definitely kind of not a traditional hero's journey story in particular. It's more about him just sort of having to plow on and suffer. But we can discuss that more in next month's episode. Yes. I mean, Roger Ebert gave the movie three out of four stars. He liked it, but didn't love it. And his critique, which I think is fair, is that the they shift the focus away from The Hobbit's in the movie, which happens a little bit less in the next two films where they get more individual stuff to do. But like you commented um, when we were doing the commentary, I said something about loving Pippin and you were like, oh, well, like the real nerds can tell between the difference between Mary and Pippin. And like, if you read the books, that's not a problem because they, (laughs) the four of them have so much to do in those books. And especially in the first novel, like the first half of that book practically is the four of them like running around and like trying to figure out what's going on. And they had to cut a ton of that stuff. And I think it's the right decision from an adaptation standpoint. Like there's so much at the beginning about Hobbiton and like them going through the forest and running into Tom Bombadil and like all of the stuff that clearly needs to go. Like that's the first thing that you say, well, that needs to get axed. 
Like, they're the perspective characters for almost all of the first novel, if not all of it. I can't remember exactly. But, like, I don't think you get anything from Aragorn's perspective until the second book. If there is, it's certainly minimal, minimal. And he is definitely more of a, like, big character in this movie because you have Viggo Mortensen and he's, like, a hunk. Right? It's always so funny to, like, think to... Because, like, they cast most of the film pretty easily and, like, famously they went through like a million actors for Aragorn. They were considering, because I think they also realized like when they were adapting it from the book, obviously his role is like increased in the movie, but also he is the only person who has like a traditional leading man role. So they were offering that to like sort of Daniel Day-Lewis and stuff. And they cast someone else like briefly and he actually started to, you know, train in New Zealand before Peter Jackson decided he didn't want him. And they brought in Aragorn, they brought in Viggo Mortensen like at the last minute because someone saw him in a play and was like, oh, that guy's good. And Viggo Mortensen's kids like Lord of the Rings. So he rushed over to New Zealand and started doing all this sort of sword training and what have you and it and he's like not like an obnoxious method actor but he is quite a famous sort of method member of the lord of the rings cast so he was like really embracing his role as aragorn and the result is a truly iconic performance and also his whole appearance is playing into it in a marvelous way we love aragorn we will be talking about aragorn extensively over the course of the next two episodes too but um vegan mortensen just a whole situation there beautiful uh, one of my friends got me a cardboard cutout of him <laughs> for my birthday, I think in the seventh grade. And then it was in my bedroom until I graduated from high school, I think. Terrifying anyone who unsuspectingly <laughs> walked into that room, not expecting to see a grown man. <laughs> I mean, 100% understandable. He is. Yeah. He isn't even in this movie that much. Like, he, no. he has his incredible entrance where he's all mysterious and, mo- and brooding around in the Prancing Pony pub, which is, like, just one of the greatest entrances ever committed to film. And then he spends the bulk of the movie just telling people to hurry up and stop lagging behind while they're on a long hike. He does some very cool sword fighting. He looks great in his costume. And we get a glimpse of his romance with uh, Arwen, which is very beautiful and romantic, despite the fact that we have been given virtually nothing to work with. And it does not matter because the aura and the energy of those two is so wonderful. And Arwen, literally, Liv Tyler is an elf. She is an elf. Of all the actors in Hollywood, she's the most, she's the most elf. She's just got it. It just, yeah. (laughs) I was, I was as a child just so into her sort of, lisping speech pattern i was like literally nothing no person's voice (laughs) has ever been more beautiful than Liv tyler's very faint elvish lisp (laughs) i mean she speaks the elven stuff so well and that's hard because it doesn't exist like that's not a real language sorry mr tolkien like you invented it and she makes it sound very convincing so congratulations to her i I think the the voice person decided to make it sound a bit more Welsh, whereas Tolkien was imagining Finnish. And I think they were like, yeah. Welsh sounds better. <laughs> Probably a correct decision. But in terms of acting, like when we were watching the movie, as adults and also as film critics, one of the things that really sprung out to us was just like the sheer quality of the acting in this is incredible. Obviously, it's like an all-star cast. They hired so many amazing sort of greats with the exception of like the hobbits and orlando bloom is some real heavy hitters and ian mckellen obviously is the mvp fantastic performance as gandalf as i said earlier delivering a lot of exposition and you would not know 
No. Yeah, the last time I'd seen this was like five years ago. And even from that relatively recent vantage point, I was quite struck by how good he is. He got an Oscar nomination for acting in this. He is the only person who got an Oscar nomination for acting in the trilogy for this film. And I think it's well-deserved. As you say, it's a lot of exposition, like primarily exposition, with a couple of really emotional scenes that he does really well. But it never feels like you're watching someone just explain stuff, even though that often is what is happening. And I think that's because in a lot of the scenes where he's explaining things, he's also observing and trying to figure stuff out. And that's what's kind of happening in his eyes that is engaging to you as a viewer while you're also kind of absorbing the information. So like the first scene where he shows up in Hobbiton, he's having this conversation with Bilbo and you as the audience are getting all of this information about the ring and Hobbits and Middle Earth and whatever. And especially if you aren't familiar with the books, like that's a lot of exposition that you need to understand what's happening. But what he's really interested in is like, what the fuck is going on with Bilbo and this ring and like what's happening. And so he's very concerned and sort of like trying to figure this out without explicitly asking about it. And it's just a great performance. Like, yeah, I mean, there's, really sense, there's like, like so many layers to that performance you get just in the first section, because like, obviously kind of the narrative purpose is it's explaining everything that's happening to us, but you get this wonderfully warm sense of affection from Gandalf's interaction with all of the hobbits. You really understand that like, he's an established figure there. He really loves these people. There's also like a slightly condescending edge to it because like the whole point is that the hobbits are like, oh, the simple country folk and Gandalf is this really kind of, you know, wise figure. But he's still like so mysterious because he's very wise and like perhaps old, but the this film doesn't really go into the fact that like canonically in the books, he's essentially an angel. He's one of these like immortal beings or what have you. But we've got that. And then we see, we understand why we need to be concerned about Bilbo thanks to his reactions not thanks to anything he's saying which is like far superior to the info dumping we usually get in this type of film and the fact is that like on paper the Gandalf character is just like the old grey beard you get in like every fucking movie like every fantasy movie every sci-fi movie there's some old guy who just shows up and like mentors someone and it's a generic role and the writing and Ian McKellen make it marvellous and on top of that for most of these scenes he is acting to a body double or like to a tennis ball on a string, because obviously they've got to do all this kind of camera trickery with different people to make everyone look the right height. <laughs> yeah. I still don't understand how they did that. And I watched all of the features yeah, on I mean, the DVDs. I still don't get it. It seems impossible to me. movie magic. Yeah. Like apparently Ian McKellen, of all the actors, he spent like the least time with the actual Hobbit actors because he spent so much time talking with the stand-ins and it's interesting because like I like to prepare for this episode I went back and looked at Ian McKellen's blog which is by the way a marvel you can read it pretty quickly like the blogs that he wrote while he was making Lord of the Rings but this was sort of just before social media and he was just doing like casual diaries during the kind of late 90s to early 2000s period when he was being cast then filming and then promoting these movies And first of all, he's a wonderful writer, which I guess you would expect as someone who's extremely well-read and has been an actor for decades. And it's very much just like reading uh, Alec Guinness's memoirs. So like very easy to read, but in a sort of British old man tone and very sort of lovey-ish. You know, there's that kind of just the the, the old theatre man kind of thing. Um, And there's like, I just picked like one of the quotes because like, it's just like, he has this wonderful turn of phrase 
when he's writing, but the one I picked was when he was describing Christopher Lee, because you can just tell how much he enjoys working with Christopher Lee. He says, Christopher Lee proves that a distinctive voice is an asset in the movies. Stars are not just pretty faces, so to speak, and they must sound good too. His 200, or is it 300, films have have robbed theatre audiences of a resounding Shakespearean. Spread across the black throne under Orthanc's vasty roof, he looked like the King Lear in age and authority. He is 78 years old, handsome and powerful. When he speaks, all I see and hear is Saruman, my old associate gone wrong. Except once when he rounded off a speech at Peter Jackson's suggestion with a snarl. To be within four feet of a Lee snarl is unsettling. I was glad he wasn't wearing his fangs. Which is <laughs> just delightful. And then later on in the same blog post, he kind of talks about how exciting it was to make Christopher Lee laugh by like telling a dirty joke about a couple of old other English actors. And I was like, oh yes, <laughs> love it. <laughs> oh, it's very beautiful. And of course, Christopher Lee is absolutely fucking marvellous in these films. Like, he's so scary. Oh. And there's an amazing wizard fight. Like, we were saying there's no real action scenes in the traditional blockbuster sense, but like, I'd say the most impactful action scene in this movie is when, like, Saruman is just beating up Gandalf, because the way they have all of the sound effects, like, literally you're watching an old man be slammed into, like, obsidian walls, which is like, this guy's gonna get pulverised. And they have really scary sound effects. No blood. Just really simple magic that he's just being picked up and flown God, it's memorable. Such, such a good scene. Yeah, I mean, I said on the commentary, I remember being really disturbed by that as a kid. And like, I had barely seen any movies with real people in them. <laughs> when I saw this movie, I'd seen a few. My parents didn't let us see anything. We'd only seen Disney movies, basically. I'd certainly never seen anything remotely like this film and nothing with anything like that scene in it. And so I was like, Ooh! And that was part of the reason why this movie made such a huge impression on me is that I just had no basis for comparison. And so this was like a miracle. Like there was just, oh my God. And I think the acting in general, I think Christopher Lee, I mean, he's great. He's terrifying. As we also said on the commentary track, it's pretty obvious he's evil. Like you don't need a lot to explain that. The fact that Gandalf goes and is like, help me deal with this problem. It's like, have you looked around? I think we know this is not going to work out for you. But I think what makes the cast work so well is it's not a movie with a bunch of like big emotional moments for these actors for the most part. There are a couple, the scene with Gandalf and Frodo where they're talking about like having this task to do and like you don't want it, but like that's just kind of what you have to deal with because this is the time you've been born in, which feels very much a comment on larger issues, right? is really amazing. And then obviously Sam like running after Frodo at the very end. So obviously this leaves like great roles to get, but in a way they're not really vain roles because you don't get like big actory moments for the most part. No. But they cast people who were good. So you, it feels convincing, right? And so as a viewer, like you just kind of buy all these people in these roles, even though they're, kind of just doing their job. And like, it makes sense that they weren't nominated for Oscars. It's not the kind of thing where you'd be like, well, of course, obviously, if you go Mortensen in this film, like an Oscar nomination, but like, he totally does the job he's being asked to do. Yeah. And they're all, I mean, as with so many marvelous casting choices, like they're all very closely mapped onto like the actors' personalities and public images. Like Kate yeah. Blanchett is Galadriel. Like she's yes. very intimidating and she has a certain agelessness. And then, like, John Reese davies who plays Gimli, is this sort of funny, gruff old man. And obviously all the hobbits are, like, fairly recognisable. Like, in, I mean, Sean Astin is probably the least like his character in terms of personality. 
Elijah would also, I think. Yeah, I mean, Elijah, Elijah Wood is a bit of a troll. He's very fun. But like at that point, it's like he was taking the role very seriously. Oh, yeah. And he wasn't famous. So there was no, it wasn't like they cast, I mean, God only knows who. To all the young people and even people who are probably, I don't know. I mean, they could have cast, they could have cast like a Disney Channel star. They could have cast like Justin Timberlake as Frodo. <laughs> yeah. Like he was definitely less recognizable than a lot of people they could have tried to put in there and they could have picked someone 10 years older who would have been way more famous yeah and i think they were very smart to go with someone who was going to then be identified with that role for the rest of his life yeah. which maybe it sucks for him but like I for mean, the purposes of the movie fine. is effective yeah obviously there are worse <laughs> problems to have than that um so we've kind of touched on this a little but um it's definitely something that's kind of discussed in relation to this movie and like big uh classic kind of adaptations in general which is that this movie canonically obviously is all about white men the cast is predominantly white men and while watching the movie the other day I definitely felt like both if this was like made today and in terms of the original I don't mind that it's all men because that kind of feels narratively fine I wouldn't particularly feel the need to like gender bend a whole bunch of characters to make it more equal, which I definitely would in the case of a lot of other films and like Shakespeare adaptations. I'm like, why not just flip everyone around? But in terms of like the racial makeup, I definitely think there is some issues here and you could easily just have race blind casting for this movie and it would definitely work slash improve the concept. Not in the sense that I'm like remake Lord of the Rings because they can never do that, but it definitely feels like uncomfortable and I think it will feel far more uncomfortable in the next two movies once we start getting more like orcs and stuff. I mean, I was thinking about this because we basically were like, tabled it when we were doing the commentary because it was just too complicated to talk about when we were watching the movie. I am not particularly bothered by either of these elements with these movies in terms of the casting. The orc situation is bad, especially with the Urukai. They show up and you're just like, oh, no, no. Because the design for those people is uh, very racialized in a way that is uh, gross. And we haven't even gotten to the like people from the South or whatever who show up in the second. The people with like war elephants. Yes. I haven't seen those movies in like 10 years, so I can't recall um, the exact details. But like, it's, it's bad. It's no good. But I think, th- in terms of like the maleness, as you say, like these books are about men. Period. Like, the, 100%. If you, and all the stuff you were saying about Tolkien, right? Like, he's writing about his war experience, essentially, even if he may not have totally, like, articulated that. Like, I don't know. I haven't read all his letters, and apparently there are a lot of them. But it's clear that that is the inspiration for these novels. And, like, his big theme is these homosocial relationships between men, as we were saying, and the sort of, like, purity of that bond. He had all these clubs, so many clubs, of like a bunch of men that women were not allowed to in his life. It seems like there were some letters where he was maybe kind of rude about women, but it doesn't seem like he was a massively like virulent sexist. I just think he wasn't like particularly interested in women, right? Like he was interested in men and their relationships. And that is what he wrote his books about, which is what we have now. And I think the appeal, as we were saying, that like we sensed as children was that they're about these kinds of male relationships that are kind of idealized, which he clearly fetishized, that are absent the kind of grossness and toxicity that invade actual male relationships so often in the real world, right? So I think that's kind of what's appealing about the films. 
In terms of the race of the cast, you are correct that if this movie was being made today, this this cast would look very different. But I think the reason doesn't bother me. And like, I certainly understand why someone watching this who is not white or just is white and is more bothered by this or whatever could be bothered. Or even like a another woman who just doesn't want to watch a movie about a bunch of men might not want to watch this. Like, I am not prescribing this attitude. But I think the goal they have with these movies is just to completely translate as faithfully as possible his vision of those books to the screen, right? Which doesn't mean they don't change things, obviously, because you have to change things. Like, they cut stuff from this novel. They change things, especially in the second novel. They make changes because that novel is unadaptable in the way it exists. But, like, they clearly felt a profound duty to those books to create adaptations that reflected his vision. And that leads to some things that are not pleasant to us to watch now, like, for instance, the orc design, or the people from the South, or whatever. But to me, watching them, it's like, okay, well, this is what you were trying to do, and you succeeded. And that means that we now have these works of art that reproduce the good and the bad things from the novels. And I think that there are other works of adaptation that approach texts in a different way, right? Where you say, okay, I know the flaws of this, and I'm going to try to correct them. And I think that just was not what they were trying to do. Like, at all. And to me, that doesn't mean there aren't things about them that I find uncomfortable, but it's like, well, I understand your project. And that clearly was not to be like, we're going to put a bunch of Black people in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Like, that is so not what they were thinking about. And this was 20 years ago, like, that would have been wild. Yeah, it was part of the conversation around the Hobbit movies where it was like, you have like, you know, like a a couple of non-white Hobbits sort of in the background sort of thing, because it was like, they've started to listen to the conversations around that. And I think it's like, if people were applying to be extras in these, in Lord of the Rings movies, like, you gotta be white. Yeah, we should say, I was looking into this also and was sort of pleasantly surprised to discover, I was kind of expecting to find some ugly stuff about uh, Mr. Tolkien in this regard because of the nature of the like obsessive pastoralism and love of like you know odin yeah and it seems like he was more just kind of like a man of his time as opposed to like a proactive like conscious racist right and there again i'll be linking to all of these things if you are interested in these books i really recommend these articles i found them really interesting especially someone who like was obsessed with this stuff as a child and has not thought about them as much as an adult. It was kind of interesting to have that perspective. He like hated Hitler and the Nazis, like disgusted by them. Um, His son, Christopher, fought for the British in the war. And um, apparently a German publisher at some point asked him to make a declaration of his Aryan extraction in 1938. And he was not happy about this and ultimately refused to do it, but he wrote a draft of a letter that he then didn't send where he was going to do it, but the draft says, I do not regard the probable absence of Jewish blood as necessarily honorable, and I have many Jewish friends, and should regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribe to the wholly pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. And there's other stuff in the letters where he makes clear that that kind of thing he did not hold with. And I think it's kind of, again, 
interesting from like a scholastic point of view, more in terms of the books than the movies, which have other problems, as we're kind of alluding to, that like he grew up reading Victorian adventure books, which are profoundly racist. Like, I mean, good Lord. And that those influence these novels too. And that clearly just is in his brain on some level. Um, Apparently in the letters, he also criticizes the racial situation in South Africa. I mean, like, it seems like as far as these things go, like he was shockingly to me based on his output, like pretty okay for a man in the mid century. But of course the bad guys are going to be like from there, from over there. And they're going to kind of look I mean, it's kind of wild that he was more conscious of this stuff than J.K. Rowling, who has access yeah. to the internet, although she is on the bad internet. But like, I'm pretty sure that he also actually explicitly kind of answered questions about are the dwarves anti-Semitic? Because like, he's working from like a long-standing trope where there's sort of like an overlap between Nordic dwarf characters who are like, I love gold. And then like, obviously European anti-Semitic stereotypes. And I think he was kind of aware of that and was like, that wasn't my intention. But at the same time, there's like obvious overlap. So it's like the fact that he was like aware of that and is saying this in letters, it kind of wild that he seemed more cognizant of those problematic elements than people who are currently writing this kind of stuff today. Um, not that I'm going to be like Tolkien is woke because I am not. But like no, this no. is also, as you said, better than I dared hope content- considering the subject matter. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, again, like the product in the books is not great on that level, right? But I just found it interesting and (laughs) pleasantly surprising to discover this. And I think there's more stuff about his political views in some of these articles. Like, he's basically just a weirdo. Like, he's just a strange man. Like, he was, like, a monarchist, but, like, like a full-on monarchist. Like, he just wanted a weird person to, like, be in charge of the country and, like, thought anarchy in, like, the old-school sense of anarchy where there's just, like, no one in charge was great. And, like, the Hobbits have no government, right? Like, there's no (laughs) government in the Shire. And I think that a lot of the time, like, the way we engage with this kind of stuff, these kind of questions, which are really complicated in art now, is to have a kind of black-and-white attitude towards like something is good or bad based on whether it sort of meets a criteria for representation or whatever. And that is not how art works. And also, especially in the past, like it's just more, people are more complicated than that. And, you know, art comes from these weird brains of weird people who are just like working through their own strange issues. And for him, it's working through these traumatic, this traumatic stuff he's lived through and He's obviously trying to recreate the fellowship, no pun intended, that he felt with these people during the war and then continue to have with other white men throughout his life. So it completely makes sense that all of the characters are people like that, right? The mainstream discourse about this stuff really has shifted a lot. And I'm sure they literally like did not, it did not begin to occur to anyone at the time. Yeah, I mean, something we're going to be seeing in, like, the next couple of movies is, like, when they introduced all the riders of Rohan, and, like, they have to have all these sort of, you know, warriors riding around on horses, but they couldn't find enough men who had horse training. So they had a bunch of women as the riders of Rohan in those movies. But instead of being, like, I wonder what the women were doing in Rohan. Maybe they also had horses. They were like, stick beards on these female stunt stunt riders. Well, but in that case, then what's the problem with Eowyn being a warrior? <laughs> yeah, right? like, I Actually, know. it does have to be a bunch of men. Yeah, I mean, anyway. 
I think after this hour long episode, we're going to cut off here before we go into like various other elements of the creative process of this film, because, you know, they all kind of blend together and we can discuss things like cinematography, music, production design, special effects and so forth over the next two episodes as well. But in terms of kind of preparing you for movies two and three, there is one like really crucial element of the production design which is just really wonderful to kind of be aware of while you're watching the movies. So the two primary production designers were Alan Lee and John Howe, who have both done extensive kind of illustrations for Lord of the Rings stuff. Vast majority of the design on these movies and the Hobbit movies came from their work and obviously incredibly talented individuals. And um, one of the things they put into this film is like there was this overarching idea of traveling through time over the course of the fellowship specifically but also the whole trilogy so we begin in what is essentially 19th century England in the Shire so it's actually quite a familiar place to start like we're in our comfort zone we're watching you know this like cheerful farm community in what looks like relatively familiar somewhat fantasy-ish farmhouses and it's lovely and comforting And then as the Hobbits kind of move through this movie and into the sequels, they're going into like an increasingly alien landscape and they're also traveling back in time into a period of wildness. So like, obviously like the elves are a bit more fantasy-ish. So they've got this kind of Art Nouveau situation going on and the dwarves are this kind of combination of Celtic and industrial. But, um, you know, when the next movie, when we go to Rohan, that's kind of Viking or Saxon. And then by the time they reach Mordor, it's this like primeval, prehistoric, wild country. And even in this film, we start seeing these elements of sort of like an ancient classical civilization, these giant statues and so forth. And the films don't explain where they came from, but um, it just gives us this tremendous sense of history and it kind of illustrates how thoughtful all of the production design in these movies are as opposed to just being like, oh, here's like what the elves look like. There is just this sense that it's a real world with centuries of history behind it. And uh, that is just one thing to look out for when you are watching film number two over the next month. We will be back next month with another commentary track and another podcast. And I look forward to discussing many things, including Howard Shore's glorious music. Yes. Um, If you want more granular thoughts on the movie you should listen to our commentary track because this was more of a macro overview which is kind of too bad because i do as i said think that this film is the best one of all three of them but we'll probably get into some details about it when we compare the two towers to the fellowship of the ring because uh, the two towers is less good so (laughs) so i'm sure that i will make several comments being like well i mean this movie's okay but if you compare what it's doing to you know, what they did in the first one. But uh, yeah, this uh, whole exercise was really rewarding for me, both the watching and then the researching and talking about it. I will obviously link to all of that. And if you are similarly inclined, I I just found it really fascinating. And just the act of watching this movie again really transported me back to that like childhood mindset, which in this era when everything is horrible all the time was nice. I mean, they're just such emotionally sincere movies. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, there are jokes, which, you know, some of them are funny and some of them are less funny. But they just are so earnest, which I think is also uncommon. Yeah. Thanks again to Lucy for sponsoring this episode. As you can tell, we have been enjoying ourselves. (laughs) We sure have. (laughs) 
be one of our longer episodes in a long time. Um, and we will be back in a month with The Two Towers. So next week, we will be watching um, another film that probably many of our listeners have an emotional attachment to, although I don't think I ever saw it. I think I read the book as a kid. I loved this book. I was obsessed with this book. I absolutely loved it. It was one of the few non-fantasy books that I really thought was amazing. Um, It's the movie Holes, uh, starring a young Shia LaBeouf, which will be funny to talk about. Yeah, as I said, I loved the book. I don't think I ever saw the movie. I'm not 100% positive. I'm sure I will discover that while watching it. Yeah, this is a movie that a lot of people speak fondly of, but I've not seen. And the cast list is kind of blowing my mind because I just thought, oh, it's a Shia LaBeouf movie. Sigourney Weaver, John Voight, Patricia Arquette, and Tim Blake Nelson. What? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm ready. Yeah, people love this film. I'm excited to probably see it for the first time. Yeah, this was like... A beloved text in my elementary school, that novel. Everyone read it. Everyone was obsessed with it. And you can find all of our Patreon content, including our commentary track for this movie and a recent mini-sode on the film Minority Report at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work at The Daily Dot and you can find me at hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.